This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. WFAN and WFAN-FM New York, a radio.com sports station. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. Welcome to our fun fest here on WFAN on Sunday mornings. Yep, I'm in remote location in a very key hideaway this Sunday morning. Hopefully you and yours are doing well and, uh, you know, coping as best you possibly can with um, COVID-19 and all of the issues that are surrounding this. Um, this is pretty amazing time that we are in. Just try to stay calm as best you possibly can and um, realize that at some point, at some point, I say, this will all come to pass as well. Well, on our program, we have um, a couple of guests who are going to join us over the next two hours of um, programming here at WFAN and share some insights because we're going to look at a couple of different things that... um, in a way, relate to discussions about uh, COVID-19 that I think you're going to find interesting. Hour one of our program is a guest who has joined us before on uh, this show. Her name is Jacqueline Newman. Jacqueline is a managing partner with a matrimonial law firm based in Manhattan. And uh, she is also an author of an interesting book that we're going to talk about too. But she's joining us today on our program to talk with us about this whole um, issue of surrounding the coronavirus, um, you know, these talks about um, isolation, quarantining. Um, in some cases, this involves um, people coming together for extended periods of time who don't normally do that in terms of um, couples, whether they be married or um, not, and uh, what the real impact of that is, and whether in some cases that could be seen as something leading toward the possibility of divorce. Yes, I mentioned the D word there. Um, Her firm's uh, website, by the way, is nycdivorcelawyer, that's always one word, dot com. Jacqueline, good morning. Welcome back to our program on the fan. It's uh, nice to have you join us. Um, 
Now, when we're talking about this topic, this topic of the coronavirus, uh, Jacqueline, um, I mentioned in introducing you that um, there is a belief or a thought as well that this could have an impact on divorce rates. How do you feel about that? Trying to make a connection with uh, Jacqueline. Um, it's interesting times, and a bit trying times at points uh, too. So I'm trying to get connected uh, with her and um, get into talking about this. Uh, her book is entitled "The New Rules of Divorce: Twelve Secrets to Protecting Your Wealth, Health, and Happiness." And we'll talk a little bit about that in the course of this discussion too. I thought this is an interesting approach to take in this discussion because a lot of talk, and there's been a lot of talk on the fan, obviously, in um, recent days and weeks uh, surrounding uh, a whole lot of things involving some of the medical aspects of um, the discussion about the coronavirus, some of the precautions that you uh, can take to hopefully try to lower your exposure uh, to this as well. And I wanted to go a little different route in our discussion uh, today. So that's part of the reason why I was suggesting our chat with Jacqueline. You know, always keep in mind, though, this whole idea of as things progress and, you know, we're being told that it could be another two to three weeks before the real peak of um, the coronavirus cases is even seen in New York State. The uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo has daily updates on the situation here, as does the Governor in um, New Jersey, Phil Murphy, and the Governor in Connecticut and Pennsylvania provide daily up- updates as well. Um, you know, you want to try as best you possibly can to stay calm. I know a lot of people are on edge. Um, it's very, very obvious. Um, even one of the clear examples is anytime you go into a place like a supermarket one of these days, you can just see the angst on um, a lot of people's faces and look at their shopping carts, and they're clearly buying a whole lot more than they normally would. And... Um, you know, one of the things that I think of, and I was thinking about this yesterday as I was doing some grocery shopping, is part of the key is to try as best we all can to avoid this sensation of panic when it comes to um, how it is that we're dealing with COVID-19. And, um, you know, a lot of people are, seem to be focused right now, too, on the scary aspect of things. Um, there's a tendency to focus a lot on the unknown, because right now there is so much that is unknown. However, the reality is 
There are a lot of resources already being put in place to try to approach uh, this virus uh, from a medical standpoint. Uh, you know, there I guess are scientific research it's research being conducted into the possibility of some way of uh, treating this. Um, hopefully, that will result in something like a vaccine or an approach to this in the not-too-distant future. And, of course, we have a phenomenal, and I do mean phenomenal, amount of resources being poured in from the medical standpoint in terms of health professionals. I mean, you look at what is being done in what I guess can be described as warlike conditions in emergency rooms uh, in the city of New York. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. And we had the story the other day where 13 people, 13 people died in one hospital in the same day from the coronavirus and complications resulting from that. Um, it's mind-blowing. And to think that we're nowhere near the peak of this yet, that's the thing that for a lot of people gets in that area of being kind of scary and frightening. But my thought always is, as best you possibly can, you want to try and stay calm. And um, just do those things that have kind of been preached to us over and over again. I know that Tom has spoken record and saying these things to you, but like you, I wash my hands countless numbers of times a day. And uh, yes, I'm fighting a battle because they're a lot drier than uh, they normally would be. And have to deal with, you know, chap skin and things like that to uh, try to keep them restored as much as possible. Um, but you do that, um, try to be aware of this concept of social distancing, which is tricky because in a lot of situations, we're social beings. And many of us enjoy that experience of meeting and greeting people. And it's kind of tricky when you get into this whole concept of approaching someone in this day and age. Because in many cases, if you look people in the eye, and I have a tendency to do that, you can literally see the fear in people's eyes. And the one thing I try to keep in mind is to smile as much as possible to actually speak in a pleasant fashion to somebody, say good morning or good afternoon, even if they don't say it back. Um, and again, to promote this idea of a sense of calm um, that things are going to be all right. 
we can't just throw our hands up and think this is never going to end or something like that. Now, there also are a whole lot of people who obviously have lost jobs. In the past week to um, two weeks or more, and that's a very troubling situation that unfortunately doesn't look like it's going to be resolved anytime soon. The one plus in that regard, if I can say there's a plus at all, I guess, is the fact that at least the government, whether it's state government or federal government levels, are looking to, as best they possibly can, uh, try to move the process along in terms of access to unemployment benefits for people who are jobless. Um, and that's... It's frustrating when you're in the situation, but it is good to know that there are resources available. I mean, there's a whole lot of resources that have certainly been marshaled in the past... Uh, couple of weeks to month uh, and trying to approach this whole situation. And then you have the other situation too that we have to keep in mind, which is uh, that of the military and um, the military has been marshaled in a fashion that really is almost unprecedented, and certainly in our lifetimes, I think, is unprecedented in this country. Um, you know, the only thing that I can think of that is comparable even in uh, modern history probably is the response to 9-11. Um, because there are a ton of resources being deployed around this country. And when you have what has taken place at the Chabots Center here in New York um, already being done, and um, that has come together through the efforts uh, of the military. And it's just, it's a phenomenal thing to watch. And I guess it's something that we can all, in a way, uh, take pride in. Because we are citizens of this country. And just being able to see what kind of a response there is um, from our country, uh, from our government, from our branches of the service, realistically is nothing short of 
astounding. Um, so that's something to take pride in. So that's the sort of things that, in a way, sort of I try to keep grounded with. Uh, I'm also making an effort every day as much as I possibly can um, to get outside. You know, a day like, was it Friday, where it was absolutely gorgeous uh, outside. Uh, It was a Tuesday or Friday, and um, be able to get out and enjoy that and just see people in many cases you normally don't see because they're working but now they're all from work they're getting out a lot of people are getting out and walking moving you know if you possibly can do that uh, that's a great way of I think relieving some of the stress that in a way we're all dealing with uh, too so that's the sort of thing that I think we have to keep in mind and just try to keep ourselves as um, keyed in, as focused as we possibly can on trying to have that sense of calm and try to stay focused on the idea that, yes, there's resolution coming. It's, you know, nothing happens as quickly as we want it to. Uh, We live in a society where we want everything done yesterday. Uh, these are different times, vastly different times. And it's just something we have to keep in mind and kind of take that little bit of a pause as best we possibly can in this day and age, too. So that's kind of my thoughts um, at this point, heading into discussion. And one of the things that I've also been thinking about in regard to this whole situation is what exactly this means for the way in which a lot of us view not only ourselves, but kind of our purpose in being here, and how it is that we see the future. Because this is one of those times where we've had something happen that causes us to take a pause that most of us never would have taken before in our lifetimes. And that's that's the thing that is just um, absolutely amazing. kind of the way that I'm viewing things right now. And hopefully, you know, you were able to keep calm. Hopefully you're able to try to enjoy some of that time with family members, with loved ones, because we're getting a lot more time together than Many of us who have very busy lives, a lot of people working two, three, or more jobs, and uh, their spouse, their spouse, spouses, sometimes their children, 
other family members are almost like ships that they pass in the middle of the night. Um, now there's a whole lot more time where people are having to be together and to come together. And, you know, the reason for it is not something that we particularly enjoy, but my thought is to try as best we possibly can to try to make the best of that time. And again, I know it sounds like I'm saying the same thing, but it is very true. And I do believe this in my heart. You got to take a positive approach with this. You have to, because there's so much that is being reported on an ongoing basis that it can be overwhelming. And one of the things that a lot of people are bringing up too is this whole idea of how it is that they approach the information. You know, we live in an age where we've got the world at our fingertips, basically. How do you deal with that? How do we manage, for lack of a better term, our intake of information? How do we manage this idea of what's an appropriate focus in terms of the information that we're taking in and how it is that we interpret that information? Those are the sort of things that come through loud and clear to me. And it's very tempting, I must admit, to listen to or watch or both, especially with the technology these days. These ongoing reports, the updates, the daily briefing. Um, there's a lot that's very visual in these briefings, especially with uh, Governor Cuomo in New York. There's all kinds of um, PowerPoint presentations, slides, and I mean, it's extremely visual uh, and extremely well done in terms of the preparation of material. But for a lot of people, probably just all that information coming together and coming at you on a daily basis is overwhelming. Because though you hear a lot of the same messages over and over and over again, it's the compounding of this that is what gets into that area that can be overwhelming for some people. And that's the area where I personally have an awful lot of concern. As somebody working in the media and somebody who's worked in the media for a long time, because as an employee of a major media company, you certainly want people to listen want them to consume information. Um, 
but you also want to provide information in a responsible fashion as best you possibly can. And also, a very key job of the media these days is trying to provide that information to people who hopefully can discern it properly in a way that you're not inspiring panic. Um, and we see the ups and downs this is taking with financial markets, especially Wall Street. And people who watch those goings on an ongoing basis are dealing with their own, I guess, sense of angst would probably be the best way of phrasing it. And it's just like, how on earth do you manage to balance all of that? That's the key thing. Anyway, those are some of my thoughts. Um, I think what we'll do here is take a pause in our discussion, check in, see if we can make connection with uh, Jacqueline and at least get in some of our uh, discussion with her this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Appreciate you being here on our program on the fan. Bob Salter, Sports Radio 1019 FM. The fan and Sports Radio 66 WFAN. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter on our program on the fan on Sunday mornings. Try to have interesting discussions and we're going to move into a discussion now that I was hoping we'd started at 6 this morning. A little bit of technical difficulty and um, miscommunication problem. I take full blame for uh, this. We move into a discussion now with Jacqueline Newman on our program. Jacqueline is a managing partner with a matrimonial law firm here in Manhattan. Uh, she is joining us on our program. Talk with us about... Um, the coronavirus in terms of the impact of this idea of um, quarantines, although I guess nobody really wants to officially use that term, but this whole idea of bringing people together who in many cases don't spend as much time together and what that really is doing in terms of relationships, the potential for divorce, et cetera. Jacqueline, good morning. Welcome to our program. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Sorry about all the difficulty in connecting with you, but we'll make this a good discussion. Uh, this idea of this um, quarantining and the impact that can have on the whole situation of tension and relationships, the potential for divorce. How do you see this? I mean, I see this as could be possibly very problematic. I mean, as you had said earlier, a lot of people, you know, they don't, even in a nice, you know, in a functioning marriage, you don't spend as much time with your spouse generally. You know, if both people are working, usually you'll see someone in the morning, you'll see someone possibly in the evening. And the weekend, you know, if you have children, a lot of times you're in the business of raising children. You know, one person's taking kids to soccer practice, the other one's taking the kids to ballet, et cetera. Everybody's busy. Now, you are probably spending more time with your spouse than you may have since your honeymoon. 
And while that could be a good thing for some couples, I think for the couples that are on the edge, it could be what pushes them over. Yeah, you know, there's people who, some people who will look at this and think, well, you know, a number of months down the road, this is going to have an impact in terms of birth announcements and birth rates and things like that in terms of this coming together of um, uh, couples and the like. But there also is this potential for, eh, you know, uh, a lot of the togetherness being a little too much. Has that been seen anyplace else? Yes. So as I understand in China, um, after, you know, not after, but during and, and toward the end of the quarantine, there were a ton of people that were filing for divorce. And as I understand, they actually had to end up putting a limit on the amount of people that were permitted to file a day because of the fact that it was just so out of control. And I've been speaking with a lot of my colleagues in the matrimonial field, and we all kind of agree that we're going to be in a situation right after this that there's just going to be an explosion. Mm. You know, in introducing you at the top of the hour, I mentioned the fact that uh, you've come out with a book called The New Rules of Divorce, 12 Secrets to Protecting Your Wealth, Health, and Happiness. Tell us a little bit about the book, if you would. Sure. So this book was published by Simon & Schuster. It came out in January. And the real point of this book, and, you know, and it's, I think it's actually a really good book for people to be reading while they're in, we're going to use the word of quarantine or spending a lot of extra time, because the purpose of this book is really to say that divorce isn't exactly what it used to be. Um, But really, I start the beginning of the book talking about whether you want to get divorced and whether it's a good idea to get divorced. And I really, you know, I say, you know, you might read this book and afterwards say, you know what? I don't want to get divorced. And I think that it comes down to people being educated. And so what I'm thinking now with the fact that people are probably, you know, they're stressed. I mean, there's a lot of stress going on right now and people that are sitting and living together and possibly thinking that this is what's going to be putting me over the edge. I'd almost say read the book now because ultimately if you read this book and decide that, you know what, I'm not, I don't want to get divorced for various reasons and it may ultimately change the way that you're behaving in your quarantine because now you'll realize I'm not getting out of this marriage and therefore I better change the way I'm behaving and try to see if I can take this opportunity to really get to know myself again and be putting myself in a more positive light as opposed to the negative. With this whole idea of um, people being in the situation of um, being quarantined, and I keep using that term, I know officially um, we're not hearing that, but the reality is in most cases that's kind of what we're dealing with. Is it possible for somebody to file for divorce while they're quarantined? So unfortunately, because of the fact that people cannot be physically within six feet of each other, we're in a situation where the courts have, I don't want to say they've closed, I wouldn't go that far, but they are closed except to absolute emergencies. So we have now been advised that we actually can't even file you know, a summons for divorce. We can't start an action for divorce right now. Really, the courts are only taking cases that have to do with absolute, absolute emergencies, and they do not deem wanting to file for divorce as an emergency. I do think if this continues on and as they, you know, organize, because obviously this all happened very fast, so the courts I think are doing the best that they can, but I think that once this organized more, I'm sure there's going to be some opening for that because you really are putting people in a situation that they can't move forward with their lives if they want to. Um, but right now, you can't file for divorce. So, you know, when people call me and they say they want out, I say, well, unfortunately, you're going to have to wait a little bit. 
Mm. And I'm sure that just adds to the frustration hearing that too, because as I mentioned earlier, we live in a society where everybody wants everything done yesterday. Absolutely. I mean, right now, you know, there's obviously frustrations everywhere. And, but I think that, yes, I think the fact, and it feels very frustrating as an attorney, you know, I want to help people and I want to move forward. And we have a lot of cases that, you know, we're set for trial. We have cases that we have motion, we have court dates and to sit and turn to a client who's been waiting for God, you know, for, you know, months, years, whatever, to move forward with their case to say, now, not only do we not have a court date, I can't even tell you when we can get back into a courthouse. It's very, very frustrating. Typically, does do the proceedings take a long period of time? I mean, in normal situations, not like we're in now? Yes, it's a short answer for it. I mean, it really depends on what process choice you get involved in. If you're litigating a case, meaning you're going to court and you're really going all the way to trial, you know, it could take years. If, you know, you're dealing with a collaborative law or a mediation, which, you know, my firm does all three, so I have a really good spectrum of knowing how each of the processes work, then, you know, it could be a much shorter time. And one of the things that actually is happening that, you know, you can continue doing at this point is that if you are negotiating your divorce, not in the court system, you know, a lot of, you know, my colleagues and I know my firm is doing, we're doing all sorts of video conferencing where people can do continue to do mediation and video conferencing, or, you know, I'm continuously working with attorneys. Now, there are a lot of people that we are moving forward we just don't have the recourse of the court. So if we can't enter into a settlement, then everybody has to wait because we can't call the judge and have them weigh in. Mm. What about the situation with divorced couples and co-parenting? How is that working during this period of time? So it's been challenging. Um, you know, unfortunately, again, when you're dealing in situations where you know, you're not, you know, you want to protect your children under all circumstances. But now I think co-parenting has been really strained and challenged during this period of time. Basically, because you have a lot of clients, or I have a, we have a lot of clients, and I, as I said, I've been speaking a lot to my colleagues, so I can speak a little bit to the New York uh, matrimonial field in that there's a lot of people that are taking advantage of the circumstances when they're in a strained custody situation and they don't want to turn their children over according to the access schedule because either... A, they're scared of the fact that, you know, the, the spouse, you know, spouse or ex-spouse has, um, you know, has the, has the virus and they're scared they're going to give it to their child. The other, you know, the other thing that's going on, and I've had a few cases like this where, you know, the parent that we represent has some sort of, you know, is in a risky class, whether they have some sort of immune, dis- you know, issue or whatever it is, they're in a risky class and they're very concerned that when the child goes to the other spouse, that, that they will not practice the social distancing and they'll take the kids to the playground, they'll do all sorts of things, and then that could be a very scary thing because if the child contracts and is just a carrier and brings it back to the other parent, that parent could get severely sick. And then then is end up being in quarantine and then can't see their other their child for two weeks or whatever the time frame ends up being. So there's a lot of people that are just doing all sorts of things that they kind of shouldn't be doing. And actually we um you know our administrative judge in New York sent out a memo really kind of, you know, warning people and saying, listen, I understand we're in this circumstances right now, but it's not as if we're not going to look back and see how you handled yourself during this, you know, during this crisis. But on a good note, I will say I also have some clients that, you know, had difficulty co-parenting and have really stepped up to the plate on this. And they are learning to communicate in a way that they really haven't before. And they're coming onto the same team. And, you know, I applaud those people. And I think that they're going to be the ones that when this is over, 
we're going to be able to settle their case in a way that probably wouldn't have happened if we weren't in this crisis. So, you know, it could go both ways, but my advice to people really is to try your best to get on the same page with your co-parents, because if not, and if you are one of those people that are taking advantage of the circumstance, I think it is going to come back and bite you uh, once the courts reopen. Let me ask you a question, because I'm curious about this this term co-parenting is used an awful lot. When I say that term to you, how do you explain what that really means in terms of the real world? Well, I think people might have different definitions of it. In my opinion, the way that co-parenting is, is really exactly what it is, parenting your child, child together. And, you know, in my ideal world, people get on the same page and they end up wanting, having shared visions of the way that they want their child to be raised, and they act accordingly. Um, you know, technically what it really just means is that you have a parenting agreement and it's, you know, kind of a nicer way of using the wording of, you know, custody, of making decisions together with your kids. Um, but it's really, you know, as I see it, it's, it's more raising your child together, even if you're no longer married. Hmm. What's the difference between legal separation and divorce, Jacqueline? So legal separation, I mean, you can technically file for a decree of legal separation. I can tell you I've been doing this for over 20 years, and I've never done that. And I think, uh, you know, a clerk in the courts would you know, kill you if you tried to. So people don't really file for legal separation. Um, but what you do hear a lot is that people will say, I'm quote-unquote legally separated. Usually that means that they've signed a separation agreement or people are no longer living together and they just call themselves legally separated, which they're not. But that's usually when you hear that term, more often than not, people are just using it very loosely and not really realizing what they're saying. But a divorce is, you know, actually getting divorced and you are no longer together. Mm. And in terms of the length of time that these proceedings take, is there a great difference when it comes to the court time that's involved? Absolutely. In other so, words, does one one take longer than the other? I mean, when I say absolutely, more often than not, litigation is going to take longer. And the reason for that is because, you know, first of all, you know, when you get court dates, you know, you can have court dates that are spread out, between, you know, months at a time. And so you're dealing with that. You know, more often than not, if you're doing a mediation, if you're doing a collaborative law, if you're doing just negotiations between attorneys, uh, that will probably be a shorter process. That said, because you do not have the court, you know, setting, saying to you, we need this done now, we need this done on the next date, blah, 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 because they're not setting that strict schedule for you, you know, it's ripe for manipulation. So there are definitely people that, you know, will be in the mediation or collaborative process or negotiations, and they can drag it out. But more often than not, I would say that the court process is definitely a longer process. It's usually a more expensive process. Um, but sometimes you really just don't have a choice if you can't come to settlement terms with your spouse. And a natural thought, and we're talking with Jacqueline Newman on our program on the fan this morning. Uh, Jacqueline is a matrimonial law attorney. Um, she's joined us by phone. Uh, NYC Divorce Lawyer, that's all as one word, dot com, the uh, website, alimony. Um, couple thoughts. First of all, can you explain exactly what alimony is? Sure. So alimony, and they also call it spousal support or maintenance, that's usually, that's the money that is paid to the spouse that earns less than the other one. Um, 
And so there are formulas and, you know, every state is different. New York has a specific formula. And the thing about alimony, I mean, what I will say, and when I talk about it, I talk about this actually in the book, in the New Rules for Divorce. One of the things we talk about, I talk about is that when you talk about what's quote unquote a new rule is that spousal support, maintenance, alimony, same thing, is really shifting. Um, it used to be that, you know, you kind of had the rule of thumb that it was half the length of the marriage and, you know, and the amounts were much larger. And now as more women are coming into the workforce, you're seeing this shift in the way the formulas work. You're seeing the shift in the awards that courts are giving that it's much less than it used to be. And so, you know, the whole feeling of I'm going to, you know, give half my, half my income forever is no longer the case. And so you're watching this shift and you're watching how that really kind of factors into a lot of the way that we're scheduling and doing our, um, you know, our settlements. So it's been an interesting shift to watch. Obviously, the other thing that, you know, factored into this is the tax laws that have changed where, you know, spousal support used to be tax deductible to the payor and income to the payee, and that's no longer the case. And so also it's not longer the case on a federal level. And so that has really impacted our settlement negotiations as well because there's just less money there because now more money is going to the government. Mm. This whole situation with alimony payments, is there thought that that's going to need to be uh, looked at differently or reassessed as a result of what has happened with the virus putting so many people out of work so fast? You know, it's a great question. It, it's, we don't have an answer as of yet. I mean, there's obviously going to have to be shifts. Um, and what people would do is file for downward modifications of whatever spousal support awards that have been structured. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that what's going to end up happening is that once the courts reopen, I think there's going to be a slew of motions for people to make downward modifications. And I think there's going to be a bunch of motions having to do with custody based on what we were just talking about earlier. Um, I think it is going to happen. I mean, what the standards are going to be, we don't know. Uh, you know, the hope is that some of the, you know, maybe this new stimulus plan, like whatever's going to happen, it's hopefully going to impact and help with the unemployment, but there's definitely going to be a situation where a lot of people are going to be filing and, you know, and how a court's going to handle that and what they're going to take into consideration is still unknown, but it's absolutely going to happen. And then, of course, is the fact that since you have a lot of the court's um, functions not taking place, is it possible that there will be those who use that as an excuse to defy court orders. Yeah. I think that at this moment, there are going to be a lot of people that are going to be, you know, implementing self-help. I think that's going to be problematic on its own. Um, you know, I mean, right now you have, you know, what, what I'm seeing more is that a lot of people are not getting fired, but their salaries are getting cut. That seems to be a big thing that's going on. A lot of companies are obviously nervous and they don't want to let go of people, but they want to cut their salaries. And so when your salary is immediately cut, and again, depending on you know, the way your salary is structured, it could have a huge impact. You know, a lot of people are bonus heavy. We deal in the high net worth space. So we deal with a lot of people that are very, very heavily bonus. And that's going to be, I mean, you know, most of the people, a lot of the clients that I deal with, you know, they, they don't really live off their salaries. They basically, you know, they spend their bonuses. Their bonuses usually last them until, you know, say the fall. Then they go into debt, then they get their bonuses, and then they kind of start all over again. And now we're going to be in a situation where that's not going to happen. Um, I think, you know, I think there's going to be a real new normal that we're going to be dealing with when, you know, the world reopens. And, you know, it's just, it, it's, 
it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a very interesting dynamic, I think, to see financially how it's going to impact things. I think to see how family dynamics are going to change. You know, one of the things that could be a positive from this is that, you know, a lot of parents that maybe weren't as involved in their children's day-to-day lives are meeting, you know, are getting to know their children in a way that they hadn't previously. And so I think that that might change the dynamic even on a custody level. I think that people might be looking for to be more involved than they may have wanted to be involved before. So, I mean, I think there's going to be just so many, there are so many unknowns to all of this, as we know. Um, That's really kind of the only thing we do know. And I think that, you know, it's going to have a huge impact on divorce and it's going to have a huge impact on how people move forward in their divorce process. All these unknowns, um, and there are a lot of them, is this something that you view as challenging or maddening? Can I say both? (laughs) I think that's kind of my answer. Um, You know, it is. I mean, I do find it challenging. And, you know, I'm very curious to see how this will all, you know, impact everything. I mean, I find, you know, human interactions to be fascinating. So I think that to watch how this is going to restructure families, to watch how this is going to restructure negotiations, people, everything, I think is going to be really, really interesting. And I do find it fascinating. Um, That said, you know, where we are right now feels very maddening because I can't do, you know, I can't help my clients the way I want to because I have no recourse in the courts. And, you know, I've had many circumstances where I've had to accept certain deals at the moment because I don't have a choice because I can't go to court and I need my clients to see their children. So I'm going to accept parenting agreements that I wouldn't have accepted in a normal circumstance, but I have to right now. That feels, you feel very helpless. You feel like you can't help your clients the way you want to. But you have to change your goal. My goal, instead of getting the best, you know, access schedule for my client, my goal was to make sure my client saw his children. That, to me, was now my goal. And to shift that way doesn't feel very good right now, and that's very maddening. But you know what? If they're, you know, we just have to kind of shift where our expectations lie for the moment with the idea that we will get back to a place where we can be in a situation where we can be asking for the things that we want and, and moving toward them. Now, when we talk about the new normal, if social distancing actually became part of the new normal, could that have an effect in the future in terms of judges with parental visitation? Uh, Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's funny. I I haven't thought that that's actually going to really happen, that that will be forever our new normal. But if it were to be, um, yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things that, you know, for good or for bad, again, you know, any time in a time of crisis, it's a time for innovation, you know, if you're going to look at the positive on this. And so one of the things that the courts have been, they had been moving toward a lot of, um, you know, e-filing, meaning basically filing everything online. You know, some of the counties are already doing that. So now there's that large shift to that. Um, I know that, you know, courts are starting to look at telephonic uh, appearances. Now, you know, do I think at the end of the day that's a better way to be? No, I think it's better to be in person and have that kind of actual interaction. But if that's what we're dealing with right now, the fact that the courts are moving toward that and the fact that, you know, they're setting themselves up to be that way, you know, whether that becomes a new normal, maybe it does. You know, maybe attorneys that, you know, are going to be coming up after me are going to say this is how it always is. For me, it will always be better to be face-to-face and, and being able to make your arguments to, your, to the judge and, you know, looking that person in the eye. But maybe that doesn't happen now, and maybe this will be the new normal. I don't know. But I do think that it will definitely change everything if we're really in a situation where people have to be forever social distanced 
and we're really doing everything on the phone and on Zoom and, you know, on computers. Mm. And in the situation where we have now where so many extracurricular activities have been canceled, uh, could that have an impact on alimony and child support payments? Absolutely. I mean, if we really, I mean, at some point, something is going to have to give. I mean, I, again, I, I can't imagine that we're going to be raising children that have to stay six feet away from all other children. Like, I just can't see that <laughs> happening. But should that be the case for, you know, at least for the short term? Um, yes. I mean, right now, people aren't paying certain things. And again, this is where if you have a nice relationship, you know, if your attorney and the attorney on the other side have nice relationships, they can be reasonable. I mean, really, this is the time that you need people to be as reasonable as possible. And they can say, listen, you know, obviously, so-and-so, you know, let's say you're in a situation where somebody's paying a lump sum month amount every month for all extracurriculars. You can turn to them and say, listen, obviously, we're not paying for that right now. I think there should be an adjustment in this number. And I've lost my job or my salary's been cut. Like, this is where people have to be people. And they, you know, you need that human goodness to exist where people can just be reasonable and they can say, yes, that makes sense. As opposed to some people who are going to say, well, you can't take me to court, so you're going to be violating the order if you don't pay X, Y, Z. And, you know, unfortunately, that's sort of what we're dealing with. We're hoping very much that people are just going to step up and recognize we're all in this together and, you know, treat each other with kindness and dignity because, again, as, you know, that judge who I told you had written that memo he basically said, it's going to come back and bite you if you don't. So my advice to everyone is to kind of take a pause, treat people with human goodness and human kindness, and be smart and reasonable because you're not getting away with something. You know, judges, everyone, you know, as the judges have said, I have a long memory. And they're going to remember if you don't handle yourself right in this. So hopefully people will. Jacqueline Newman is the managing partner at the matrimonial law firm Berkman, Botker, Newman, and Shine LLP in Manhattan. She's the author of The New Rules of Divorce, 12 Secrets to Protecting Your Wealth, Health, and Happiness. Those new rules, can you give us an overview of what those are? Uh, sure. I mean, one of the ones, you know, one of the biggest ones we talk about is the fact of, you know, spousal support changing. The other thing that really is actually, and this will be very interesting to see how this really shifts more. I mean, even before all of this began is that, you know, you're seeing a change in custody. So back in the day, you kind of were, you know, fathers were every other weekend and Wednesday night dinners, and that's just a thing of the past. Now we really have a lot of fathers that are saying, I want 50-50 custody, and they're getting it. And again, what will be so interesting, and, you know, I, again, I wrote this obviously not having any thoughts that there would ever be a virus taking over the world, but if you really look at it, it's actually appropriate in the fact that they started this now father becoming more involved, seeing this shift in family dynamics. I really think that this quarantine, or not to use the word, yeah, I agree, but everybody living in close quarters for a longer period of time and spending this kind of level of time together, I think is going to accelerate the, you know, the shift in the dynamics and the parenting and the co-parenting and, you know, to kind of bring it all together to talk about the fact that I think that father's who may not have been involved all the time in the kids' homework and, you know, making dinner with the child and, and really even, you know, talking about everything just because they were working and that, you know, time didn't permit. Time now permits. And, you know, and I can even speak for myself in saying that, you know, my husband is much more involved in the day-to-day -day now than he may have been before because of the fact that we're all together and the time is allowing that to happen. And so, you know, and again, I would never wish this on the world by any means, but if we're going to look at silver linings, I think that's going to be one of them. I think the fact that 
there is going to be a closeness that is going to exist amongst families, you know, and amongst parents and children specifically that didn't exist before because the time allowed it, you know. And on the other hand, for those that make it through, I think it can really strengthen a marriage. But for those that don't, you know, I guess they'll be calling our office. Hmm. Interesting discussion with our guest in this portion of our program, Jacqueline Newman. Jacqueline, thank you very much for joining us. Certainly the best with your work. Thank you so much. The book, again, is entitled The New Rules of Divorce, 12 Secrets to Protecting Your Wealth, Health, and Happiness. More of our program to come this Sunday morning here on The Fan. WFAN and WFAN-FM New York, a radio.com sports station. Good morning, everybody. It is Rick Wolf, who's along with the Sports Edge program after our 8 o'clock update. Mike Francesa, Mike Francesa, wait a minute. Yes, Mike Francesa will be along after our 9 o'clock update this Sunday morning. Or I should say top of the hour sports flash. Um, we move into an interesting discussion on our program. This is Bob Sanford. This hour of our program, we'll be talking about the work of 800 Gambler and uh, Great guest is joining us on our program. Neva Pryor has an interesting background she's going to share with us as well. Uh, Neva moved into the position of Executive Director of the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey. I believe it was back in 2015. She is joining us this hour of our program. First of all, good morning. Welcome to our program here on The Fan, Neva. Um, good morning. It's great to be here, <laughs> or at least nice on the phone. <laughs> nice to have you uh, join us. Um, you know, I mentioned your background being an interesting one because, as I understand, you had done some work um, in Philadelphia. Would yeah. you share what that was like and, I guess, in a way, how that experience kind of prepared you, I guess, for the job in New Jersey? Okay. Um, I have, like, a pretty – I think I gave you a bio, but it's it only really highlights my – uh, nonprofit experience, but I have mm-hmm. a wealth of for-profit experience as well. Um, but I started, I got my master's degree at 50. I was a late bloomer. <laughs> um, and so I'm a therapist by trade, you know, by teaching, but um, I was, I've worked with the homeless population. I've worked with mental health. And a friend of mine told me about a position um, doing gambling addiction and before then, I never even, like most people, I didn't really know it was a real disorder. So I took the job and I found out about a lot of, I got a lot of information. I, it was like thrown into the fire really quickly. I was basically given the grant and said, make it breathe. So um, <laughs> what I did there was I worked with uh, prevention providers on basically going into schools, or senior centers, or anyone who would listen um, to tell them about problem and disordered gambling. We did many different um, projects, 
And um, my very good friend who's now passed on, who was the um, uh, executive director of the council in Pennsylvania, Jim Pappas, basically taught me the ropes on gambling and, and, um, and things like that. So he told me about the position that was open in New Jersey, and I applied for it. And I know that that information was very helpful. Um, the fact that I am a therapist helped me with our treatment providers. So there was a lot of education that I have had over the last, um, well, almost eight or nine years since I first started in Philadelphia um, to now. In May, I'll celebrate uh, five years with the council. So it, it's been, it's you know, a lot of people say, well, I know addictions, um, but this type of addiction is very different, and you really have to um, um, be educated and exposed to the disorder. What makes this type of addiction so different? Well, when I say different, I also mean very similar as well. But the difference with this, um, it, you know, if I have a substance use disorder, say with alcohol, I'm going to I'm going to smell of alcohol. I may stagger. I may slur my words. I may have a, a health condition behind it. Um, but with problem and disordered gamblers, a lot of times you don't know what's going on until the very end. There's they subtly may um, not be truthful with the family. They may lose time. They may um, deplete, well, they will deplete the family's financial resources, which sometimes in substance use you don't see as much as you see with gambling. Um, and it, it, there's no telltale signs unless, it, you know, usually it's the financial. For instance, I've had women call me up on the phone and say, oh, my God, the sheriff's at the door. He's been hiding the foreclosure notices, and I don't know what to do. What am I? Where am I supposed to go? Um, and we also uh, gamblers also have a very high suicide rate because when they do hit rock bottom, it's it's pretty bad, and they've depleted the family. And a lot of times they'll say, "Oh well, you know, I I can't help them. I can't. I'm better off dead than alive." So there's a one in five ratio of problem gamblers who have attempted suicide. Mm. So there's a, that's the difference. A lot of thoughts running through my head right now, but I want to back up for a second because you've used a term that in discussion, we've, I don't think we've ever touched upon this before. And we've had a lot of discussions on this program and on this station um, about the topic of compulsive gambling, right? You use the, you use the term disordered gambling, right? Um, well, um, we've, heard of, we've heard of problem gambling before. What exactly is right. disordered gambling? Okay, there's a diagnostic manual that people in the therapeutic psychology therapeutic field use when we diagnose people. Uh, prior to, um, I believe, 2013. Maybe even for um, the um, gambling addiction became a full-fledged disorder as far as it was called an addiction. Before, it used to be called an impulse control disorder. And it was very hard for people to treat that as a main um, disorder. They changed the name 
And even though our organization is called the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, the real term um, amongst people in the field is problem and disordered gambling. Problem gambler may have uh, some issues with gambling and may not meet full criteria, but a disordered gambler will meet all criteria. And now we're able to treat um, as a main uh, disorder. A lot of times people had to put it under um, uh, depression. Um, uh, a lot of times you'll see people who have um, bipolar disorder, who have it, some with schizophrenia, believe it or not. And we would treat it as that instead of as, a, as well, they, we can co-occur. We can, we can treat both now. So it's, it's, it was huge when we were finally able to use the right terminology and treat. So mm-hmm. also we're the first um, non-substance use disorder that is a real addiction. A lot of people will throw around terms, food addiction, sex addiction. They're not um, what we. They're not an addiction of sorts. Um, they're more like an impulse control disorder, or that's what it's seemingly um, called. And there is a push to get it called a um, uh, a disorder and a full fledged addiction. But right now, it's not. For instance, with ga- gaming with children, I mean that's huge. <laughs> um, that's really uh, not you know besides the type of gambling and with sports betting being so high, we're seeing a lot of kids that are having issues with gaming, gaming addiction, and they're looking to put that one in the uh, our diagnostic manual as well. When you say children having issues, to what extent? Well, they display the same kind of, um, you know, uh, they're, they are, they're compulsive. You put them a lot of, like right now, I'm sure a lot of kids spend most of their day behind a screen of one, one form or another, and they're gaming. It's the same preoccupation. Uh, some of the, like one of my colleagues, one of my uh, team members could probably uh, give it more um, in regard to a lot of what the kids are doing, but there are these things, these loot boxes and other forms of things like that that kids are paying money into. And there was an ESPN um, story a couple of years ago on this child who had taken his parents' credit cards and was using it to play video games, was buying these loot boxes, and he contemplated suicide because of uh, the way he was feeling. Um, it's all an escape. It's the way uh, a lot of people escape the day-to-day thing. But we want to find, especially now when kids are indoors, we want to make sure that there's positive activities going on in the home. Mm-hmm. I've got to ask a question because some people wonder in discussions like this, and we haven't even gotten into talking about 800 Gambler, which we will in just a couple moments. Mm-hmm. Some people wonder, is the council anti-gambling? How no. do you answer that? No, we are neither for nor against gambling. If people want because by and large, the majority of the population doesn't have a problem. It's just like with any kind of addiction. There's that group of people who are trying to escape or trying to 
fulfill their lives in activities outside of themselves. Instead of looking within to figure out what's going on, um, a lot of trauma. You'll see a lot of vets that are gambling. Um, a lot of people who have experienced trauma. Seniors now are fulfilling their days going to uh, the casino. Now, some of them go down there. They take $20, dollars with them. They go down there, they hang out, and they come home. But then there's mm-hmm. others who start going down there, and then they end up a lot of times gambling by themselves because they're gambling. It's just like, a, uh, say, someone who has a problem with uh, alcohol. They start out with their friends, and then after a while, they, they, they're drinking too much, so they can't be with their friends, and it's just like with the gambling. Um, so, no, we are neither for nor against gambling. I think if, you know, people want to gamble, let them gamble. But I want to be there for the, that certain portion of the population. And in New Jersey, it's 6.3% of the population that has a problem with gambling. I want to be there for them. I want to make sure that they see 800 Gambler on everything that has to do with gambling. Not to deter people from gambling, but to let them know that there's support, treatment, and hope through 800 Gambler. Um, it's, that's just the way it is. It's not like, you know, we're, we're like other addictions where you have to stop you know, like, I mean, not stop, but you can't do one or the other because it's illegal. It's just, okay, for instance, with sports betting. When sports betting first started, we were getting people who were calling up that said that they had a problem with sports betting. Well, they've had that problem all along, but now they can go for help because it's legal. When you're doing something in the dark, when you're doing things that are illegal, you're, a lot of times you're not going to reach out for help because you're afraid. But now they can come and they can get help and it can be treated. Now we're starting to see people who might have started a couple of years ago when it first became legal. And it, and it just was a, a way for them to, to do something that they had always done. But now it's a problem because now it's more accessible through the Internet and things like that. Okay, we'll get into talking about that in just a moment. But something sure. I want to ask you about is this idea of who is the problem gambler. I mean, uh, is there a way to categorize or characterize exactly who falls into this, or potentially could it be anybody? Yeah, it could be anybody. Addiction knows no, you know, doesn't know anybody really. I mean, they don't care about race, they don't care about color, they don't care about um, how old you are. But it used to be when we would think of um, gamblers, we would think of Caucasian men that were gambling. Now you're seeing people all over the spectrum. You're seeing people of all ethnicities. And it's starting to creep up more and more because of the accessibility. Um, for instance, now in New Jersey they can buy lottery tickets through a courier. So right now, people, they, they're not leaving their home, so they're going to do that. Um, it's just like with any other addiction where someone who has suffered trauma, someone who, especially with the sports better or the Internet gambler, they like that action. People think it's about the money, not always the money. It's the behaviors, it's the activities that go along with it. 
you know, um, being able to uh, be in the mix. For instance, a couple of years ago, we have a conference every year in Las Vegas. And it was right before sports betting became legal in New Jersey. And I walked through their sports betting area. It was so exciting watching what was going on. I was like, oh, well, maybe I should, you know, I was working, so I really didn't. But in the back of my mind, maybe I should put $5 down just to uh, get into the action, get into the excitement of it. So that's what a lot of people are um, doing. You'll see, and like I mentioned previously about seniors, you know, I'm in that category. And a lot of my friends have died. Most of my family, my elders have died. I've experienced losses and things like that. And now, um, you know, I'm in this big house by myself. <laughs> can't, can't get out. <clears throat> Excuse me. My children, I say they run away from home. <laughs> they've grown <laughs> up and they've left, you know. <laughs> so, so then, you know, you know, we go into like, who am I now? What am I, what is my life like now? So I may get with a group of friends and if I have that, uh, proclivity to become an ad, uh, a person with an addiction, it's going to be there. And you just never know. You, you can't say, like, two kids could suffer the same trauma. One has a substance use or, or uh, gambling problem, and the other one doesn't. So we mm-hmm. can't say by chemistry. We can't say by because this person was molested as a child, they're definitely going to be a gambler or uh, an, uh, some other addiction. We can't say that, but as the person goes on, we know that there are individuals who may have a problem. Okay. This leads perfectly to the thought I've had since we began our discussion, and we're talking with Neva Pryor on a program on the fan. Uh, Neva is Executive Director of the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey. Many of you know the 800-GAMBLER hotline. We'll talk about that in a couple moments as well. It's Sports Edge, follows our 8 o'clock update. Mike Frances is along after a 9 o'clock update this Sunday morning. I'm Bob Soldier. The question is, for somebody who's listening to this discussion, and they're wondering, and there are people who are, do I have a problem? How does somebody know? Well, a lot of times people really in the back of their minds will know that there's a problem going on. And what I do is I go through them, through different things when I talk, because during the day, the 800 gambler number will come into our office. So it allows us to know what's going on in the world as far as gamblers, gamblers are concerned. I'll go through and I'll say, well, are you spending more money than you should be? Sometimes they'll say, oh, no, I i got plenty of money. I can, you know, well, tell me a little bit more about that. If, if, if it comes out a lot of times through their own language, through their own speech, they'll say, oh, well, you know what? I'm spending more money than I should. Am I, am I starting to lie to my family? You know, am I saying, oh, well, I'm going out to buy a pack of cigarettes, you know, that old excuse. I'm going out to buy a pack of cigarettes. They'll come back with a big stack of lottery tickets. Nobody knows because they get rid of those tickets. So, um, but they'll they'll call up like that. Um, if they're spending a lot, of, 
you know, I could be gambling right now on the phone while I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. There are people would um, Dr. Leonauer did a study. Um, she's with Rutgers University, and she did a study, and a lot of people were doing internet gaming on the job. So, okay, I'm I'm working overtime. Well, what are you working overtime to do? Are you working for the company or are you working for yourself? You know, if preoccupation, am I thinking about, and this is where how people who can't grasp gambling, if you think about how closely it is to substance use disorder, am I spending too much time thinking about it? If I'm saying to myself, oh, I can't wait till so-and-so leaves so I can get onto the computer and place my bet or use my phone or um, go down to the casino? Am I thinking about it all day long? Um, so that's a, a, one of the things right now. Are they, you know, are, are, have you lost big, I mean, they, I have people calling me up on the phone saying they've lost like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I'm, uh, you know, anybody else would be like, wow. But to them, it's, you know, they'll think about it after you after you talk to them, and they'll say, "Yeah, that is a problem." But it has to, like I said, the preoccupation, the lying, um, borrowing on credit cards. That's what happens. They'll open up credit cards and then start uh, using the taking out lines of credit, things like that. So that's where a person has a problem, and then emotionally. Um, and spiritually, with addictions, that's where it hits. Am I emotionally invested in doing this activity? Am I psychologically thinking about this all the time? How is my spirituality? Am I no, you know, with every addiction, when when they go into a twelve step, that one of the first things they want people to do is to connect with some type of higher power. It doesn't have to be what we might consider it, but any type of higher power. So it's it, it affects how how is my family life going? Does my spouse know? How is it affecting my children? You know, you might say, well, I can afford to lose uh, fifty grand. Well, what about your kids? Are you going to be able to send them to college if that's what, what if that's where you're taking the money from? So it's mm. it's really, you know, I think people know because usually when they, usually when by the time they've called me up, they kind of know. And I mean, I'm there to like either validate the fact that yes, there is a problem, and maybe you know we offer treatment to people. Uh, I have. Gosh, I have about 50 treatment providers that we fund. If a person can't afford to pay, then we have uh, a grant that will help them to pay. And so we offer, when we get into the 800 Gambler, what we do, we offer all kinds of things. And I think most people who have uh, some type of an addiction should at least be screened by a therapist. And Gambler's Anonymous meetings, too. In terms of that screening, and I'm glad you mentioned uh-huh. that, how, um, I guess, common is the training for that? Um, how involved does the screening get? Uh, the training for our treatment providers? Mm-hmm. Yes. It's okay. okay. So um, in New Jersey, they have to have um, 
some type of license, like either to work in addictions or a mental health license. Then they have to sit for 30 hours. We have, uh, in fact, we had to cancel one of ours, but we're going to um, hopefully put them online soon. Um to be able to offer people, they have to have 30 hours of gambling training. Then they have to do a certain amount of number of hours of supervision. Then, um, then we can open it up to them to do treatment and they have to pass their uh, test. We give them two years to do that. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, so that's what we do. And see, when, when we're screening people, we go through, Basically, we use the diagnostic manual, and I don't have it in front of me, but there's, I believe, eight criteria, seven or eight criteria um, that a person has to meet to, um, to, to be a problem or disordered gambler. So, you know, that's what we go by. We, it's not just, an, okay, I think this guy has a problem. No, it has to meet certain criteria. Mm-hmm. Now, 800-GAMBLER. How exactly does the line work? Okay. So we have, um, you know, in the state of New Jersey, the 800 gambler number is used. Um, There are some other states who will uh, pay to use our number. Um, So we have, it it can be in other states as well. So a person calls the 800 gambler number. And like I said, you know, before all this happened with the pandemic, um, we were in the office every day, and we would take those calls. Now, when a call comes in, believe it or not, most of the calls are what's the, what's you know what's the number for today, or um, I need to know if the buffet is open. <laughs> I want to make you know those kind of things because our number is everywhere. So, in in full disclosure, a lot of our but a lot of our calls. Are for that kind of stuff, but we, I, I look at it this way: we should give the person the number because then they'll say, "Wow, those people were really nice," and I can uh, call them back when I do have a problem. Um, but every once in a while, we do get that person who calls in and they need help. And uh, to back it up just a little bit, we not only treat the gambler, but we also treat the family as well. So when we call up. We listen to them. A lot of times, you know what, as a therapist or um, working these lines, when somebody says to me, I've never told anyone like this, I figure there must have been something about this uh, conversation that made them feel safe enough to tell me their deepest, darkest secret. So a lot of times that's what we hear because they're too ashamed to tell anybody else what is going on with them. So at that point, we'll say, okay, these are the resources that we have. So I always send people to our 800gambler.org um, website because we have so many videos and so many stories and things like that um, that they can look at. There's meetings available. Our therapists are on there. Right now, uh, a lot of the GA meetings, are the face-to-face ones are canceled. Um, but there are phone meetings. Uh, most uh, 12-step groups are doing phone meetings, and um, they're doing it for support. So it's, it's, it, that's good in a way. So we listen to them. Uh, we're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, 
we have a call center in Louisiana that takes our calls on off hour and now all the time. Um, so we take down what they're going through. It's not really for me to say whether you are a gambler, you have a gambling problem. That's not my job. My job is, is in this particular instance is to refer, refer you to resources, to listen to your problem, to find out what is it that I can do to support you. Maybe it's something else. Or I'll have mm-hmm. a lot of times I'll get mothers and uh, fathers calling up, oh, my God, my child is caught up in gambling, and what can I do? And unfortunately, a lot of times it's with the bookie, and that's where things get bad. Okay. I want to talk more about this whole idea of the support for family members, too, and this discussion. Neva Pryor is talking with us. She's Executive Director of the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800gambler.org, an important website to keep in mind. We'll take a pause in our discussion, come back and talk more with you, Neva, on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. Bob Salter, Sports Radio 1019 FM, The Fan, and Sports Radio 66, WFAN. It's Rick Wolf along with the Sports Edge program after our 8 o'clock update. Mike Francesa is along after our 9 o'clock update on The Fan this Sunday morning. I'm Bob Salter. In uh, our discussion, we're talking with Neva Pryor, who is Executive Director of the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey. They run the 800-GAMBLER hotline, 800GAMBLER.org, an important website as well. Before we paused for uh, messages there, I posed the idea that I've been thinking about the entire time we've been talking is this idea for some of the people who are listening to us today who are directly impacted by this Somebody they know, somebody they love, falls in this category of being a problem gambler. And the person wants to be supportive, but doesn't have a clue how to do it. What help can you provide? Okay. Um, and like I was saying before the break, um, we have resources for not just the problem gambler, but their families as well. As most people know, addictions uh, are not just involving the uh, person with the addiction, but also the family members are too. Um, the whole family is sick. So when the problem gambler's uh, significant other or family or friend calls up, what we do is we... Oh, Like I said, with the problem gambler, we allow them to talk. We allow them to to express what's going on with them. Then what we would do is offer Gammonon meetings, which are GA or uh, meetings for the family, just like Al-Anon, things like that. So we will refer them to the Gammonon meetings. Excuse me. After that, uh, and we also offer them treatment because, like I said, they're they're just as sick as the person with the addiction. They might just say, "Oh, well, it's their problem." <clears throat> well, no, it's it's the whole family's problem. So the treatment providers through our grant can not only treat the gambler, but they can also treat the family member and the family member. You know, the whole system of um, the family. So that's very encouraging when we know that we can help the whole situation. So if you go to our website, 800gambler.org, you'll see videos of 
family members who are dealing with the um, with the problem, as well as for the person who has the addiction. And we like for them to go on there to see about the Gammonon meetings and things like that. Um, I don't know if there's any Gammonon. I don't believe that right now there are any Gammonon meetings over the phone, but um, there are other support groups that they can find out about um, if they call the 800-GAMBLER number. The value and the importance of meetings being available you know, the in-person meetings, we've heard an awful lot about. Listen, there have been times when we've had discussions like this in the past, Neva, where we actually have had people call into the program who were on their way to meetings, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, that points up, I think, the importance of those. But can you express for us how it is that those meetings, I guess, are supportive for somebody who's dealing with these kinds of issues, these kinds of problems? Okay. Well, it's very similar to Gamblers Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous meetings. Um, what the person is able to do is if if I say to you, I want to go down to the casino and spend all my money and do this and do that and describe the behaviors, I if I'm a gambler, and I and I'm in the room of the Gamblers Anonymous meetings. I can um, identify with that person. I can say I understand. Where some of us might go, oh my God, like why would you do that? But the gambler, one gambler to another, is the most therapeutic uh, thing you have going on. Because okay, if uh, if somebody goes to see a therapist in the beginning and they go back periodically, they can only see that therapist but so many times because of restraints of insurance, et cetera. But if I can go to a Gambler's Anonymous meeting a couple days a week, that's huge because I'm getting that support, treatment, and hope that I can get. Um, I can get it uh, with one person talking to another. So that's where, you know, when Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson – came up with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, it was just the two of them. And they found that so therapeutic that they could say, hey, you know what? I feel like drinking. And the person, you know, can say, yeah, I understand. But this is what we'll do not to. And it's the same thing with the gambler. We can, the gambler can support each other and say, hey, you know, let's not do that. Let's do something else. And be able to be a here to listen, here to listen. That importance of having somebody to listen. I mean, there's no way to understate exactly what that means. Well, if a person thinks that they're, um, if a person thinks that I have this issue and I've been holding it. For years, um, my focus when I was getting my master's degree and my therapy and the things that I like to do are to deal with trauma. And you know, back in the day, way back in the day, when we, you know, we, we, you would put garbage in a little tin can, little uh, aluminum trash can, or whatever it was made out of, and you'd put the garbage in there. Well, after a while, if that garbage didn't come out, it would explode. 
Mm-hmm. And when it explodes, it explodes in, in the addictions field as suicidality. It explodes as uh, addiction. It explodes as my behaviors. And that's the kind of thing that we want to uh, be able to help a person with, is to be able to deal with what is that garbage that has been put into the can all these years and hasn't been able to be let out. You know, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. If I'm able to articulate what I've been, you know, just think of something that you've held all your life and you say, I'm not telling anybody this. And say say you get the opportunity to tell somebody. It's like a huge weight is off your shoulder. Then you can move on. You can move on and deal with the problem and be able to change the problem. But if you hold it and and you're up in your head, which is sometimes, you know, that's what we're all dealing with right now. We're up in our own heads, in our, you know, in our dwellings, not being able to get out. So mm-hmm. that's not a good place to be sometimes. I don't know about you, but it's not always a good place to be up in my head. <laughs> but to be able to, you know, I, I could hold you hostage all day long. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Because we're just so it's just so important for one human being to be able to connect with another one. Mm. You've mentioned treatment earlier in our discussion today. How, I guess, first of all, how available is treatment and what forms does that take? Okay. Well, um, there's not as much treatment as I would like to see, but we're working on it. Um, We had a grant. We applied for a grant two years ago. And at that time, we had seven treatment providers. Now I have 50, which I am very proud of my, my team for being able to go out, recruit people, train them, um, do whatever. You know, we work closely with the Department of uh, Human Services in uh, New Jersey, and they have helped us to be able to establish this so that we can go on and treat problem gamblers. So the fact that we have 50, we're looking to do more. Of course, you know, some of our efforts have been thwarted a little bit, but now our treatment providers are able to do tele therapy so that they can call up um, their client and have a session. So treatment is very important. It, it's it's very important to be able to have a safe place, to be able to talk about my, you know, what's going on in my life, what happened. Um, sometimes, yeah, I'll go to a 12-step meeting, but to be able to talk uh, to a person, to tell them my intimate issues to be able to tell them things that I was taken to the grave with me, um, to be able to um, get it out, and that person to give them the space. See, even like sometimes if I t- if you t- oh that's okay, you'll feel better. It's not that bad. No, that's not what treatment is about. Treatment is allowing the person to be able to articulate their problem and to do it without judgment, and, and to just allow them to talk. Because a lot of times if you talk your problems through, you can come up with your own conclusion. And we're, that's what we're there for, is to guide you to come up with your own conclusion, to be able to frame uh, your therapy 
and say, okay, well, this is what I want to work on, and that's what I want to work on. There, I find, you know, even if you just go for a couple of sessions, I don't say you have to be, you know, a lot of times people think that therapists want to keep you forever. No, that's not our job. Our job is to just give you that space. Sometimes a couple of sessions so that you can dump things, so that you can uh, find out what you need to work on. That's what we're here for. And this idea of folks who are working in the field that you're in, mm-hmm. how much, I guess, training goes into being somebody who's certified as a counselor in the field? Well, a lot of times people have, um, you know, myself as a therapist, I have a ma- uh, bachelor's and master's degree in clinical and co- counseling psychology. There are people who are MSWs uh, that have so they're in social work, um, and different types of therapists that have been trained. Some of our therapists um, have bachelor's degrees, but it's in a, a psychology field, and then they've gone on for other trainings, which is the thirty-hour training for um, uh, the gambling, and they also have to have an addictions um, certification as well or license, excuse me. So they have to have that found. They have to understand the therapeutic value. Then um, they go through the 30-hour, and like I said, they have to go through supervision so that they they can talk about what's going on in therapy with their individual clients, and then there's a person who is seasoned who will help them, and they'll discuss the cases. So that's the type of uh, training. Now, with the coronavirus and a lot of people being isolated, uh, in some cases, basically quarantined, what impact do you see that having on compulsive gambling? Well, I see it. You know, I I really am concerned because I don't want people to turn to their drug of choice, in other words, which is Mm -hmm. gambling, alcohol, uh, any type of substance use. So what we're trying to do through having, um, through posting the phone meetings is to be able to have them continue in that routine. A lot of these are every day, and all I have to do is pick up a phone instead of getting in the car and going to uh, a meeting. So I can pick up the phone. I can listen in. I don't even have to talk if I don't want to. I listen in, and I hear how people are struggling. They, uh, A lot of people do what's called self-exclusion. I forgot to mention that as a tool as well. Um, and what that means is that they've banned themselves through um, uh, the brick-and-mortar casinos and, and sports betting places, and then they can also do it over the for the Internet. Um, and that's an awesome tool right now to be able to ban yourselves on the Internet if that's something that you choose to do. Um, so that, and like I said before, there's... Uh, uh, lottery now. 
um, that can be purchased over the phone. So, okay, well, maybe I'm used to going down to the casino. So now I'm going to reach out to uh, the Internet or buying a lottery ticket. You know, it's just like if I always try to liken it to substance use because people can understand it better. But it's just like if, if my drink of choice is, I don't know, uh, vodka, and I can't get vodka, I'm a good gin. Or I'm going to get this or I'm going to get that. So that's what we don't want to happen. We don't want people to, like somebody will say, switch addictions or have a co-occurring disorder to be able to reach out to something that they they think, oh, well, I don't have a problem. This is this is a thought process of a, of, an, of a person with an addiction. Oh, I don't have a problem with this, so I can do this. Um, and so because I'm not do I'm not going to the casino and I'm doing the internet because I never did that before. I'm okay. I'm safe. So we don't want that type of mentality to um, to continue. We want to be able to help people to stay the course, and that's why even during these times, they can they can call the 800 gambler number 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If they just want to call up and say, you know what, I want to gamble. I can't stand this. I'm going through. I mean, there are people right now, and I don't know whether it re- hasn't really set in, but there are people who are going to go through some enormous mental health issues um, and substance abuse, uh, uh, not sub- uh, all kinds of addiction problems through this. You know, I worry about people with um, domestic partnership uh, abuse. So it, it's there's a lot going on right now that people don't know about that people aren't thinking about. And all I'm saying is I want the, I want people to know that if before they develop a problem, if they think, okay, well, you know, I know I had a problem before this happened. Let me be able to call somebody so that I can get some uh, clarity on what's going on, be able to tell another human being. Cause a lot of people, they're not talking to anybody during the day. So it's good if they have this outlet. Mm-hmm. Neva Pryor is talking with us on our program on FAN this morning. She's executive director of the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey. They run the 800-GAMBLER hotline, 1-800-GAMBLER, 24-7 confidential helpline, 800gambler.org, the website. And she's kind enough to be talking with us on our program. Rick Wolf has the Sports Edge program along after 8 this morning. And Mike Francesa is along after our 9 o'clock Sports Flash on the fan. This idea that you mentioned in the very beginning of our discussion of the number 800 Gambler being so Mm -hmm. prominent. Mm -hmm. And it is. I mean, literally, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Why is that so? Why is that so important? It's very important because if I don't, it, you know, for instance, if you go down, to, if you go down to Atlantic City, you're not going to see our signs going down to Atlantic City. You're going to see it coming back because nobody's thinking that they have a problem when they go down. They're thinking they know they have a, you know, they'll pretty much know they have a problem when they go back. So we need funding so that we can keep. The billboards up there. Um, when you type in gambling problem um, in the search, we want to be at the top. We want to make sure people see it up at the top. 
um, it, it has to be in the forefront because of the state that uh, the people live in in New Jersey. There's all kinds of gambling venues going on. You can bet on pretty much anything. And even though, like right now with sports betting, even though there's not a whole lot of sports betting going on, there are like these little side things that are going on, like, you know, when are we going to get out of the coronavirus? Uh, when are we going to, um, you know, I think today in Arizona, they're replaying a baseball game. <laughs> uh, so, you know, they're going to bet on that. So, it's just a, a thing where we want to make sure that people continue to be able to call up to be able to help um, help them with this. So in this, you know, we found out through, um, I have uh, my assistant executive director, Dan Trelaro. He really looks at these kind of things, especially with the um, call in and the amount of people that call in. And we found that you know, when we first started, we didn't have such a high percentage of sports betting callers coming in. Now we have 11.8% on an average, which is it's kind of high for our um, our our um, 800 gambler number. So we want to, you know, make sure that people continue to know where to go for help. Mm. And when you look to the future for the council, what do you see ahead? What's on your wish list? I, I, for wish to be able to reach more people, to be able to um, put, because there's some people, believe it or not, who don't know who we are. Um, I want to make sure that everybody knows who we are. I want to be able to get into the schools. It's hard sometimes to be able to get into the schools to talk to the children about gambling. Um, I want that. I want to be able to have more treatment providers. Uh, I have a, oh, the team that I have is just awesome. It's it's just, they're just awesome. Every single one of them. Um, very supportive of each other. And I, I want to be able to maybe add some more staff to be able to make sure that we're there for everybody. Because really our, our, um, our main thrust is to make sure that everybody in the state of New Jersey is aware of problem and disordered gambling. It's not just the problem gambler per se, but it's also, um, you know, you like the people who are listening today, they may not have known what problem and disordered gambling is. They may not have known that they have a high suicide rate, but it's up to me and, and my team to be able to go out and tell them that. And that's that's my my wish. And you know what? My biggest wish of every day is if I can help somebody who can never return the favor, who can never do anything. Hey, I've made my day. When that happens, I'm on top of the world. And I want to make sure, you know, that everybody knows that if they or someone they know has a gambling problem, that they should call 800-GAMBLER. We offer support treatment, and hope. We're just a phone call or click away. Neva Pryor, who is Executive Director of the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, and they run the 800-GAMBLER hotline, 1-800-GAMBLER, 800gambler.org. Thank you very much for being kind with your time and sharing the information you have today. Definitely Anytime. touch Anytime. a lot of people's information, uh, too. I, I really uh, appreciate this so much. 
Thank you. Certainly the best continued with your work. Thank you, and you stay well. I'm going to try to. Thank you. Well, let me tell you what we're going to do in the area of staying well. After our top-of-the-hour sports flash, Rick Wolf is along, and he's been emailing me literally during this show. He is that excited, some of the things that he has coming up on the program this morning on Sports Edge. Mike Francesa is along after our 9 o'clock sports flash, and Rick is also excited about the fact of being able to be on before Mike and introduce him as well. Uh, Lots of fun things happening this weekend on The Fan. We'll see you at 6 next Sunday morning, and we'll be with you just for one hour then. We have something very special happening at 7 next Sunday morning. More on that next weekend. Have a great day. Our thanks to Brian Rascona for an outstanding technical job this Sunday morning. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.